What's up, everyone? I am Kyle Schudick, and welcome to the Stay in the Fight podcast. I am so grateful to have you listening with me today. This podcast is an in-the-field approach to connect you to the stories and experiences of people who are or have had to overcome their battles, those who have chosen to stay in the fight. You're going to hear of resilience, perseverance, and persistence that hopefully relates and resonates with you to show you that you are not alone in your thoughts and feelings and experiences. Our aim is for you to extract a lesson, strategy, or tactic that you can integrate right now so that when things feel too overwhelming, you too can stay in the fight. Welcome Paul Stretton Stevens onto the Stay in the Fight podcast. Paul, welcome to the show, my friend. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've, I'm really excited. You know, we got a chance to talk a little bit before, you know, before we bring anybody onto the show, we just kind of have a chat to see how our dialogue goes. And we kind of took some of the discussion into some different directions that not a lot of people expect. And I really loved your background, what you've, what you've done um, and how you've gotten to where you've been. Tell people, you know, where you're located, you know, where you're, what you're focusing on right now and just kind of really what is, what makes you, you. Okay. That's a big question. Have you got enough time? <laughs> oh no. yeah. I think we got plenty of time. <laughs> okay. That's good. Uh, okay. So I'm in uh, a small coastal town called Exmouth in Devon in the UK. And I work as a, as a coach, I'm an coach, author and speaker. I bring new perspectives. Uh, my my strapline is these days is I bring perspective, wisdom, and insight to the difference makers in the world. Mm. And what that does, it results in either subtle or seismic shifts in their life, work, or play. And we can talk about that later on how that's achieved. But yeah. where I came from is uh, I grew up in Nottingham, which are a lot of your listeners will probably know from Robin Hood stories. Um, I grew up, uh, I went to 12 different schools. Wow. The, the last school I was at was opposite uh, two factories, the players factories, which was a cigarette factory and a rally bicycle factory. And the subjects that you were given as options were metalwork, woodwork and technical drawing. And everybody was destined to go to those factories or, or to the mines which was in the, the north of the county. And that wasn't for me. It just wasn't for me. I knew I, I just had to get out. And my way of getting out, I joined, I joined the military. I joined the Royal Marines. That's, that's a really polar opposite shift, right? <laughs> I was the... joined the Royal Marines. <laughs> well, because I've I got family history in the Marines, it was the only thing I really knew. Yeah. I didn't really explore anything else. And in those days, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you are. Yeah. In those days, the career service, when they come to the school, they go, okay, which factory are you going to go to? Wow. Anyway, uh, yeah. None. 
oh, you've got to go to one of them. So no, I haven't. I've already signed up. I've signed on the dotted line. And as soon as I'm able, I'm gone. And the Marines was the choice. Yep. I've had, I've had the, the pleasure to work around the Royal Marines kind of um, later in, in, in my career. I was in Afghanistan in 2011 and we got to kind of interact with them. I didn't do anything like cooperative with them, but they just seemed like a, it's a different breed. And so when you think of the like, United States Marines versus the Royal Marines, there, there is a vast difference between the two. I think we share, a, we share a, a name. That's about it. But if I had to, if I had to put any kind of context to what, my perception of the Royal Marines were, where they were pretty much like, I don't know how, to my listeners, maybe like the Rangers would be to, to the Army, you know, that little notch, of, that notch above, like right? you go that extra mile, because these guys were always out rucking or, or marching uh, when they were on the base or running, uh, you know, a simulated marathon. You know, they were just constantly in this state of physical exertion, right, where, you know, the perception of the Marine Corps for the United States is that that's what they do. But it was just that little bit of extra, right? Just going to extra 10, 20%, you know, above everybody else. And, and they had good stature. So how did your experience really, how was your experience in the Royal Marines? Yeah, I mean, I, I joined as a youngster because in, in those days you, you could join as a, uh, what they call a junior Marine. Okay. So I hit 16 at, in the July and in September I was in. Wow. So... And I, I, the training is so exhilarating and so challenging. Man. And we did actually come across a detachment of US Marines. They were based, I think it was at RAF St. Morgan in Cornwall. Okay. And uh, we visited them and you know, did their assault course and, and smashed their record, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> and they came to us and uh, we have an aerial course. Ours is like a two-part. Mm -hmm. You have your normal obstacle course. You know, yeah. Your, but then we have an aerial course as well, which is, you know, a few meters above the ground. Okay. But the, in those days, I'm not sure what it's like today, but those days there was no safety nets. Oh, wow. And uh, a few of the US guys had a go, but a few of them just said, I'm not doing it without a safety net. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, we, could, we appreciate that because we were, we were sort of giving baby steps on it to start with, you know, as you yeah. do. You know, you, get, you go a little, little bit at a time and you build up. And you have to work to a time to that and then a time to the obstacle course. And then they put you both together and you mm -hmm. have to do a time pursuit on that as well. So, yeah. you know, we were, we were felt well used to it by then. But for anybody coming in fresh, whether you're trained or in whatever, it could have been a bit daunting. Oh, yeah. So we, we, we understood that. We understood that. But I, I, I spent a couple of years um, in there. And then I spoke to a couple of military policemen when I was going home on leave. They were at the, on duty in one of the train stations. Mm hmm. And uh, we had a delay and I got talk, talking to a couple of these guys and I, I was really intrigued about the work they were doing and the specialisms that they could actually find themselves in and, and the postings that they could find themselves, uh, you know, where they could get sent to in the world. Yeah. And I asked, I asked about it and they sent me some details and uh, I opted to, to, to go into the Royal Military Police. Okay. And it, was, okay. it was a good option. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd got the background already from the from the Royal Marines, which was fantastic, um, mm -hmm. and and the level of weaponry um, that you were able to use as a result of that was far beyond the uh, the capabilities of the the Royal Military Police, which was which was handy in in some circumstances. Um, but the the police work was was really it was interesting because we were still in Cold War. Yeah. So I was based to uh, typical military, isn't it? You put in for three postings of your choice. 
mm-hmm. and they send you exactly where you don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Seems about right. Yeah. So uh, I put in for three UK postings and they sent me to Germany for three years. Wow. Uh, which was good. We really, I really enjoyed it. It was good, uh, good work. Uh, we had uh, at that time about 250,000 troops uh, stationed in Germany. Man. And all their families as well. So our jurisdiction was quite wide. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of liaison with the U.S. military police, the mm-hmm. German military police, and the German police. Um, so it was a very multidisciplinary role. We had some interesting activities that were taking place over there at the time. Um, so, what years were those that you were over there? I was over there eighty-two to eighty-five. Okay. So. Yeah, so definitely very interesting. Very. I mean. So, and that's, for, for a lot of people in, in, who, who listen to this who might not be of, of an age to remember all of that, there was definitely a separation of Germany at the time, right? You have East Germany, West Germany, <laughs> Cold War is pretty much, you know, it's really at a, at a pretty, pretty big height. And yeah, man, that's, that's, that's a different facet that I've never thought of because, you know, in, in that time I was just coming around this earth. <laughs> was, yeah, you know, yeah, long way so, yeah, yeah, the same. Uh, you know, I have some cousins and uncles that are uh, cousins that are way older than myself. My uncles were way older than that, um, and a couple of them actually served over um, in Germany in the in the in the eighties. And we never really talk about that though. But there's this this definite um, when you have this what do you call it um, just heightened anxiety around like two sides that are really they're trying to push the buttons of each other, but they're not really going to push the button. But you still have that that edge on the edge feeling um what is that really you know going over to germany knowing how that is kind of showing up in society at the time like what did that really feel like saying okay well i put in for three uk postings i want to stay home around the home and you know still do the job because i'm not taking away from that but then you go over to the one place that you just really don't expect right because that's what of course the government will do (laughs) yo you want to go to the beach we're going to send you to the arctic right um Tell me a little bit about that. You know, how does that, especially in that time, you know, what does that really do from your perspective? Well, I think, I think that anxiety was probably in parts of society in, in the country, but when you're actually over there, you, it kind of drops away because you're just doing your job. Mm-hmm. And because you're not exposed then to the UK media or the, or the news or any, any, in any aspect, because everything's in German, yeah you kind of don't unless you're fluent in german you're you're not going to pick up on what's happening Mm. and you're not and if you do you're going to get their their slant on things anyway so (laughs) it kind of drops away and you just get on and do your job yeah where where it was heightened was occasionally not very often when we would have military zones very specific zones of military where they would exercise areas etc etc and then occasionally you get a report there was a a russian vehicle entering that area to try and to recce the area basically mm-hmm. and we had specific vehicles that would um, pursue these vehicles i wasn't involved in that particular side of thing but we did have specific uh, staff that were were there just to do that to pursue them um and to see if they can you know detain them in, the, in certain areas if they're out of in the wrong zone should we say yeah but our normal duties was just to police the, the military mm-hmm. um make sure they weren't doing things they shouldn't be doing. So every aspect of police work we would cover. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's a unique duty, right? The, the military police, when you, when you look at it, so I had a, um, I had a cousin, or I should say second cousin, we just say cousin, you know, significantly older than I was in, in around the Vietnam era, and he was a military police. And, you know, he, he was talking about the, um, sometimes, you know, the, the duties would take you to, you know, policing the, the, the he was a Marine, and uh, policing Marines, which we know how belligerent they can get. And then also during certain times, you know, his job duties would take him to do something else where you're not actually doing the, the duty of, of policing the military, you're actually using that job function to go out and kind of, um, not really police society, but when you're deployed, right? When you're somewhere else, you yeah. actually have to take those duties and, and kind of now uh, protect the people that you were policing before. It was, it was a really unique circumstance, just being able to listen, listen to that and then also kind of meeting somebody else who's had that background. <clears throat> and what I really got actually from your last, from your last little um, bit that you were explaining was that, and what I really liked was the fact that you said, you know, when you're there and you're doing it, it's kind of just your job, right? Things become routine. And things yep. become, it's just, it's something that you do. You put your head down. I know from experience when being deployed that it's just, this is what you have to do and this is what you're going to do. And you don't really let things kind of build up because it takes your concentration off of what your duties are. But what we also know is when people come back to society, whether, you know, or they just come back off the job, they clock, they clock out, whatever it is, is that maybe things start to catch up for a little bit, you know, um, you're not necessarily in that situation anymore. However, uh, sometimes we still live in it, right? We're kind of, maybe you miss it uh, is one, one description that I get from a lot of guys or that they still feel that that's the way that they have to, to live their life is on that very structured, regimented and heightened awareness. And so what I'm really trying to boil down to is when you returned from Germany and you came back to the, to the, to the UK, right? To the to actual, what we call stateside, right? Um, what was the transition in that like for you? Oh well, after Germany, I did I did some I did a few months in Canada, mm -hmm. and okay. uh, wow. returned returned back to Germany, and and then my next posting was in Northern Ireland, where we had the troubles at the time, mm -hmm. and we were there for two years, where most of the military regiments there would go and spend months at a time, whereas the military police would go as an individual and join a unit, and you'd be there for two years. Yeah, and you pretty much did everything from patrolling the streets to, to weapons intelligence to, to intelligence gathering. Uh, every, all the different aspects there you, you could be involved in. Yeah. So Germany was really peaceful. Uh, you know, it's your normal policing of a military society, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Whereas Ireland was a totally different kettle of fish. You were yeah. also <laughs> policing the military, but you were also policing the streets. Wow. So you had a, a dual role, really. Yeah. And that's where, you know, sometimes, to be honest, it was mainly fairly quiet mm -hmm. from our aspect, but you, there were a few moments, obviously. And, and what you're talking about is when you're transitioning when you come back from that, when yeah. you go back home, when you, you finish your service. And mm -hmm. that sort of thing is something stick with you. You, you do miss the job, you know you it's been, it's been your life for i mean for me it was like five years so you miss those aspects of the job and you miss the camaraderie and i think you miss that uniformity and that routine yeah but what you don't miss is obviously the the moments you want to forget mm. you know you, you don't nothing prepares you for for 
the aftermath of an explosion where, where somebody's been killed. Absolutely. You know, you do all your training, that's fine. And you, you, at the time you respond and everything kicks in, you know, that all your training kicks in and you, you do your job and you do it without thinking. And then it might be just be one thing that triggers it. Mm -hmm. that, that little sense of humanity that, you know, enters into your brain while you're doing that training and you think that was a person. Yeah. You know, and, and you have to switch off again and you, you go back into your training, don't you? Mm -hmm. And you, you can carry on. But then that comes back later on, maybe. Yeah. Because yeah. in those days, there was no, um, I'm saying in those days, it was, a, it was a while ago. So you would finish, you'd come back, you'd write up your reports, you'd have a debrief. Yeah. And that's, that was about it. Then the next day you turn up for duty as normal and you carry on. And mm. that's still true of many of the guys today. Oh, yeah. But if, if it really does affect people, then there are services there to help them. Yeah. You know, what, what I find really interesting is, is that there's still this, um, in, in many guys that I've talked to, actually just recently over our Veterans Day, um, is that there's still this kind of just shove it down mentality if you just push it back like the, the, you're not allowed to have the humanity come out and I think as I've kind of grown into to what I do is talking to people like this is once we start to peel away the humanity it just becomes like the the, the release of everything is like oh it's okay yeah fine you know I you're able to close what we call like close the loop right yeah you make meaning of everything oh well here's what happened you know i saw somebody um or i came up on an explosion or i was in a firefight or it, it doesn't really matter it, I'm, I'm going to extremes but you're able to make meaning of what you've experienced and being able to use that to to greater society right or maybe the people you're working with so let's say you're on the job as a military police officer i really want to dig into the story because we did talk about it so we'll go into yeah, yeah it. go go for it um but you can take that and say, instead of shoving it down, you can use that to maybe train your new guy or, you know, maybe come up with some new procedures that are going to keep things like this from happening. And when we don't do that, and we don't turn that into a learning opportunity, we don't have the opportunity to close the loop. But it's not just on the tactical side or the technical side, it's also internally. And so, you know, we, we use everything. Oh, yeah, we found all this out. You know, this is our new procedure and everything else. But it doesn't get rid of the fact that you've had to process something like that because it's not something in society today versus let's say a thousand years ago when, you know, tribes were hunting each other, <laughs> you know, it's not something in, in a civilized society today that we're necessarily um, now prone to process anymore. Right. And so when we see the worst of the worst, it, it now becomes a little more exacerbated, right? It, it just becomes more, I'm trying to get a good term for it, but it's just not, we're not a tribal society anymore. We're supposed to be hunting and killing each other. You know, we're more civilized. And so when you try to process that as an individual, now you're not, it's not something we're, we're necessarily going to be prone to, to, to having to see anymore. So it's not something we expect too much in our society, where if you would have gone back in the wild west, right, you know, people are getting shot in the streets, so a thousand years back, tribe versus, versus tribe, you're seeing people get, you know, skinned and stabbed and everything else. But today, it's just not something we're supposed to expect. And what I really want to dig into is you, you told, um, when we had a conversation, we talked for a little bit, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when you were actually in Northern Ireland, Ireland as a military police officer, and we know for anybody who, in a listenership, I'm going to let you explain, you know, what was going on at the time. But, you know, tell me, there's, there's one aspect you, you explained, and I really want you to dig into that for the audience, because it's not something that somebody should see or walk upon every day. So can you take us into where you were at, what the year was, and what was really going on, and then the actual event that happened? Yeah, I think the, wor the worst uh, 
I mean, there was a few events, but I think the worst one that sticks in my mind is we were probably coming to the end of a, probably a nine, 10 hour patrol. Mm-hmm. And we just passed a certain area and we heard an explosion. And that was in the direction of where we'd just come from. And we, we turned around, we attended it, we were first on scene. And the largest piece of wreckage there was an engine block. Yeah. And if you imagine, I think we would call them people carriers these days, mm-hmm. MPVs. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was what we call a minibus. And the largest piece of wreckage was that engine block. Man. And we'd driven past that very spot no more than 10 minutes before. Mm. And there was an IED. Um, we weren't sure at the time how it was detonated. And there was, we secured the areas you do. Um, got got room, patrols around the, the perimeter so they could search for the bombers. And we had, they had construction workers around the area and they were all jeering, you know, they were jeering. And we, we didn't know who the, who the victim was or victims were at that time. Yeah. We, had, we had no idea whatsoever. And uh, we just followed the procedure. And yeah. you, you started securing the area, got support coming in, started gathering the evidence. And, and then obviously that was involved, you know, picking up body parts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and then we found out, you know, it was one of our own. Hmm. That was actually on his day off going to collect a vehicle to to take families on an outing. Jeez. And he'd gone with a colleague in a vehicle to a depot to collect the vehicle. And his colleague was following him back in the vehicle and was right behind him when when the vehicle exploded. Jeez. So uh, we, we, we obviously got him and we secured him and, and got him uh, to safety. Mm-hmm. And that sticks with me. Every time I come across that date in March every year, I still remember it. It has less impact on me now. Yeah. But I do remember it. Hmm. And I think it's quite funny this because I'm, I'm, I'm sight impaired, but I'm a, quite a visual person. Yeah. Now I get it. So in my mind, everything is visual. Yeah. So I still remember the scene. I still remember the day, what it looked like, etc. Um, and then my colleagues who were there. And, and I remember having to restrain one of the colleagues because of the, it kind of got to him a little bit there and then where the, the construction workers were jeering and cheering and everything. And, and, and he cocked his weapon and really wanted to have a go, Man. which obviously wasn't the, wasn't the way to do things. Yeah, so we, no. we had to, <clears throat> we had to redirect him. Yeah. Um, but that was because of the, the tension in the situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, we could have had a real problem if he'd have, uh, you know, let rip. Yeah, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, but you know, it, it was it was contained. It was contained. But that that's the sort of main scenario that sticks in my mind. And like I said, it has less impact now. But that date comes round a few yeah. days before. You think, oh, that's a day. Yeah, it's curious. You know, a lot of guys that I talk to who you know who are um, veterans of any kind of service, there are certain events that will stick out to them you know and and yeah. and it could they could they've could have gone through a bunch like I, I have some really good friends that you know they were they were really heavy when when the iraq when uh in 2003 invasion invasion of iraq when the u.s uk forces shot up into iraq 
and there was so much, so many things that were going on, they can remember one specific date, you know, out of everything that they've seen, um, they can remember one specific date. I can, I talked to, you know, different first responders too, and they can remember that one specific, the, the one thing that really stuck out to them out of everything they possibly have seen. Yep. And um, it's just for, for, for them, and it could be multiple triggers too, but a lot of them have that one thing. And I'm not saying that you don't, that you should just have the one thing. If you have multiple, okay, that's, that's fine. But it just, something comes up and it really had a profound impact. Um, you know, there's people who have had to perform CPR on a child, right? Um, yeah. That is, I can't imagine that, you know, I had a friend who hadn't, uh, he just posted recently on Facebook and he's local to me. So we haven't really talked about it, about an IED that went off and then actually was buried the wrong way. So it blew out the other way, but it was enough if it had been directed at him could have, um, done some serious damage. Then there are other veterans that I've met that have lost limbs, you know, from an IED blast. There's, you know, friends yep. that I've had that I've met, they can tell you all these different dates. And, and the thing is, is that it just kind of sticks with them. But over time, you're right. It just kind of, um, there is a reminder every year, right? They can remember, most of them can remember clear as day, um, when and where it happened, what happened, what everything looked like, what it smelled like. It's just, it's, it's insane what the human mind can do when it recalls those kind of things but it does have less of an impact. But for the ones that haven't kind of sat and dealt with it, it's kind of lingered around longer, right? Because we talk about making that meaning of everything. And so at the time, when you went through that, and that's a significant event, because that's kind of in your home soil, right? I mean, you really have, I don't think we'll go into the details of, of how nasty things got with the IRA, but you can Google it if you want to, if you're not familiar, but there was some very, I've, I've watched movies on it. I've researched a little bit into it, you know, before in the past, I just like to read stuff, but, um, things got pretty nasty. And so now you're not, you don't feel secure in your, your own area, but how at that time after that's over with, you know, over the years, have you, did you, did you end up trying to deal with it? Did you end up trying to, um, maybe repair some things or did you just kind of suppress it down? How did that actually work for you? That's an interesting question because I think, how do you put this? I think you don't realize the impact on you. Hmm. Now, I'll give you an example of this because even just as a normal military policeman in Germany, yeah. it was not uncommon to come across fatalities in traffic accidents, for example. Mm -hmm. I think my first duty was there was a, a double fatality in a traffic accident. Okay. So that was not uncommon to, to witness that and be part of that. So those incidents sort of kind of reduce the impact. The more of those you come across, the more injuries where somebody's been stabbed or something or somebody's been shot or something like that. The more time you see these types of incidents, I don't say you get hardened to it or even you shouldn't even get used to it, but to a degree, I think you probably do. Yeah. Which shouldn't, shouldn't be right. Now, I haven't had experienced things like you, you mentioned guys going to Iraq and Afghanistan. I can't mm -hmm. begin to imagine what it was like for them out there. Yeah. You know, I've spoken to people that have come back and, you know, they've given me some real horror stories and, you know, and you know what it's like if you're ex-military and they're military and they're talking, they think it's okay to talk to you and they yeah. open up a bit and they give you the detail because they know you, you, you can accept it maybe. Mm -hmm. And you know, these, those guys, I take my hat off to all of them. I mean, they were absolutely phenomenal in what they do. And, but getting back to that, like 
I have the side of the emergency responders as well from being a military policeman mm-hmm. in like a normal society, like in Germany. And then I have the military side of things like when we served in Northern Ireland. Yeah. So you kind of get a dual perspective here. And I can really empathize with first responders around the world who see these kinds of occurrences day in, day out. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're a first responder in a major city in the world, mm. you know, you're going to see a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, you need to take care because obviously PTSD affects everybody, not just the, the police, but the, the ambulance services, the paramedics, the fire Absolutely. service, you know. But from my point of view, I think leaving the service, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. Hmm. Every, every year you get the, that, what I call the, an, an unpleasant anniversary <coughs> when yeah. you remember certain events. And then I had a, a back injury later on in life. I was a physical education instructor when I left the service and yeah. uh, I had a back injury later on. So, yeah. and uh, that gives you a lot of time to reflect when you're lying on your back recovering. You've got hours and hours and hours and days and days. And <coughs> it was then that I thought, well, what is this something? You know, mm. does that really sort of, why does it keep coming back in your mind? Yeah. You know, do, why, why, why doesn't it disappear like everything else? Like you say, suppress it. Yeah. So uh, I thought there might be something in that. And I, I did ad- address that. And uh, I did an NLP practitioner's course uh, a good few years ago. And I found that was really useful for, uh, it has a certain amount of techniques that can help you deal with those things. Mm. So I think as much as going on the course, becoming an NLP, NLP practitioner, it was as, it was also a, an exercise for me to, to go through some stuff as well. Yeah. And I think that, that was really useful. That was really useful because there are a couple of techniques in there. And if your listeners know anybody who's NLP practitioner trained, that if you want to eradicate a memory or reduce the effect of a memory, there's a few techniques in there that can help you do that. Yeah. So it lessens the impact on you. you know, what's, uh, what's really funny about that is um, I've come across some different languages. It's like, oh, well, you know, you can kind of, um, I wouldn't say forget an experience, but you can definitely reframe it. Yeah. You know, and that's what I, I always talk about closing the loop and making meaning of everything. You know, from a car accident to um, if you were in a firefight or if you were, you know, again, performing trauma, uh, you know, uh, emergency medicine on a child, it's, I don't think those memories ever go away for anybody, but you can definitely turn it into something that is more profound than it is damaging, you know, or what we make damaging because it's what we turn it into, you know, something that keeps us, you know, either um, survivor's guilt, you know, those are, that's one that I think comes up with some guys um, or the fact that, you know, maybe I could have done better. Uh, maybe I could have done, you know, this is my job and I wasn't able to succeed. So it's not necessarily survivor's guilt, but there's definitely, there's this uh, factor that goes in, into there. And there's a lot of tools out there that can help people, that can definitely help people through that. Um, you know, really, you, you said something interesting, you know, talking about like leaving the service and you didn't really think anything was wrong. For a lot of people that I've talked to, they said it doesn't show up until a couple years later. You know, and when I, when I talk to, when I talk to other service members, um, you know, they say it doesn't show up till a couple of years later, but you have a unique perspective 
And so here where I live in Houston, about 20% of our police services are all prior service. So they're all come from a military background and then they join the police department, sheriff's department, constables, whatever. Yep. If you know how we're structured here, we've got vastly different tiers and they don't kind of all fall into the same regiment. However, yep. about 20% of them in this area are all veterans. And it's, it's, that's a distinct thing to, to really go through. So how would you parallel because um, what I'd love to do is try to draw the lines between the two. And you mentioned something also was is that, you know, you couldn't imagine what people have gone through in Iraq and Afghanistan, but I look at it from, you know, being somebody who deployed over there, looking at, you know, my family who are in the police services here. I can't imagine working scenes, you know, where somebody has been cratered by a vehicle or in a sexual assault or a stabbing or a murder. Like I couldn't, like it's cause it's on the home front. And really, that's something we shouldn't, you know, in a civilized society, we shouldn't really be seeing. And I'm not saying some of the countries that we've had war in aren't civilized at all. However, it's just a different facet. What would you think unites those kind of two fronts together where they could really, where they could really kind of meet, right? And being somebody who has both perspectives, start to actually produce results for themselves. Well, the thing, the most common, common thing amongst that is they're dealing with other human beings. Mm-hmm in a different way slightly, but they are dealing with human beings. And as much as the military may not understand completely the motivations of their enemy, a policeman may not understand fully the motivations of a criminal. Yeah. And there's a, whilst you can have empathy and whilst you can be prepared and you can be ready, you can't be prepared for absolutely everything. Mm. And a policeman who goes on the streets, especially, I mean, I think we're fortunate here in the UK that not all of our police are armed. Yeah. You know, we've still got a society where we have a, a limited amount of armed response. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do need it. There's no getting away from that. But we do have officers, you know, and they, they do their jobs. And they're not armed. I mean, more, maybe a taser, that's about it these days. Whereas in the States, I mean, in, and I lived in Spain for a you know, total of 11 years, mm-hmm. everybody's armed. Yeah. You know, and but you need when you're armed to know you, you're prepared to use that if you need to in the line of your duty mm. to protect others or protect yourself. That's true. And, and the same applies to the military. So we have that commonality there as well. But I think <clears throat> I'm not sure about the US military in, in this respect of support for, for the, once you've had a contact and once you come back from that and once you've you know, you've gone through that because in the police service, as far as I understand, there is that support. Yeah. You know, in many police services now you, you've been in a, an incident and maybe you have to hand your weapon in until the investigation is complete and, you, you mm-hmm. know, you're restricted to a desk duty. It depends on the, on the service you, you, you're working in. But there is some support there if you need it. Yeah. And that support is more immediate if you're an emergent, you know, first responder. Would you, would you say that's true? I would say, US? yeah. So, you know, here, um, one thing that we've seen in Houston is they have the peer assistance group and it is immediate. You know, if somebody's maybe, um, they go through an incident. Yeah. They have to go through the protocol, right? They, they kind of go on modified duty, um, that I understand. I haven't served on that side, but I have two, three, I mean, I've got a plenty of family <laughs> that works for the department. Um, so I get to, I get to, you know, for lack of a better word, pick their brain, right? Yep, good. I don't always like that term, but you know, we have conversations and 
over the years, I've become more empathetic towards that. I think before, you know, there's like that animosity between the two, like, oh, I was military and you're a police officer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's kind of like, no, I understand because this, I've seen, I've witnessed my people go through, you know, my side, go through these things. I've seen the similar similarities between the two. I don't see any difference besides yep. the way we serve, right? One's an enemy, one's a criminal. You know, I wouldn't call a criminal exactly. so much an enemy. Um, and the effect that you're dealing with that. So you, man, you hit that spot on. But I would say, yes, as far as the police services, there is the immediate impact. Like, what can we do immediately? What I don't see is the long term, because what we know, like you said, is that those dates will come back up in your mind. And yep. you'll have maybe five years down the road, you're hesitant on something, or maybe it, it triggers the way you respond to an incident now, to where you respond with more alertness, not that it's bad, but it might prone something bad to happen, right? Where you could roll up onto a scene. And, and so uh, in the way I've talked to a couple uh, first responders that I know without giving names, cause I don't, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it could make the scene worse and it could make the perception of their job worse than it really, it, that it is not, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so what I'm looking at is that now the medium to long-term, I don't really feel like there's anything in place. You're right in the short term, let's get it out, turn you around, put you back on the street. But we know from trauma, the way it affects you, it affects you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And so that's I think what we I mentioned something as well when we had our pre, pre-discussion as well. And it yeah. just sprung to mind from what you just said there that for a long while, I would go into a bar, cafe or restaurant and I'd want to sit in a, sit in a situation where I could actually see the entrance and the exit. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I yeah. and unconsciously I would do that and I'd be clocking who was coming in, who was going out. Yeah. And I remember when my wife and I first got together, I was still in that mode, mm. you know, and that was many years later. Yeah. And that became, I think it just becomes a habit. It does. That you, now I've, I've, I've broken that because it's not important to me because I'm sight impaired. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so it doesn't matter to me one way or the other, but I broke that habit before that. Yeah. And because my, my, my now wife said, well, you know, why? And mm. I said, well, just that's sort of inbuilt within you. And yeah. it was, uh, it's a totally unconscious thing. Cause I said, oh, where do you want to sit? And I'd always choose somewhere where you could, you know, you can vis- have vision of the vantage point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of weird how, how all that works, you know, from, from even the most like basically trained military person that I've met, you know, to, yep. to the most experienced, um, on that end to the law enforcement side, um, to even not even law enforcement, even to like fire and response, like how their perception of society has shifted and based on what they've experienced it's even shifts even more and you can kind of see that in how they respond to people how they interact with society how they interact with other people you know whether they're withdrawn um whether they kind of take a more uh stand back approach to to in, in, integrating into a group um it's just it's funny how those subtle men, mental shifts happen and how it really can impact them long term and keep them from really kind of doing great things so i actually had a uh, it was a Facebook conversations guy I hadn't talked to in a little while. And we were talking about, you know, how did he build his resilience? I said, Hey, you seem very resilient, right? That's just kind of a term that came up because I noticed the things that you're doing. And he's like, I really had to work at it. You know, I've had to choose something to keep that resilience going forward. My training that I do um, outside of just military and law enforcement work that keeps my resilience up. It's, it's, it's just choosing the right tool to kind of pull yourself through that right? Or maybe several tools or groups or so many different options that are out there. 
but you're right. You know, um, people don't notice those shifts and how they can kind of maybe start to hone in on something that would maybe benefit them in the long term. And because what I see with those things, like you said, um, just, just the hypervigilance alone, right? Going into a restaurant or a cafe or a bar and wanting to sit there and now you're not engaged in conference. Let's say you go with your wife and she's yep. sitting across from you and what are you paying attention to? Everything else, but what's right in front of you. And that's the importance. So now not only is, are you heightened awareness in a situation that maybe you shouldn't be, even though I, we can give justification to that just based off experience. Now what happens? It, it can start to deteriorate relationships, right? Because you're not paying attention to where you should be. Man, there's so Absolutely. many, it just, it just snowballs, doesn't it? It, it? it can do if you let it. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think the key is to recognize it. Mm. And but the, the problem with a lot of people is, and I've spoken to a lot of veterans too, mm -hmm. is that they don't recognize it. Yeah. It becomes the norm. And that, that habitual behavior becomes their norm. So when somebody says, you know, do you do anything behavior-wise that's out of the norm? They say no. Because for them, that is normal. Yeah. Yep. But it only takes somebody from the outside to point it out to them to say, hey, guys, this isn't normal. You know, sitting mm -hmm. in the restaurant, keeping an eye on the door every now and again when it opens and shuts uh, instead of the, the beautiful person in front of you. Yeah. That isn't normal. No. Because no. you're not on duty anymore. You're away from it. Yeah. You're out of it. And I think <laughs> it takes sometimes somebody from the outside to point that out to them. Yeah. Which is a shame because for some people that might never happen. It's true. So how do you think we could break that? You know, I've been, I've been exploring this option of, and, and it's certainly a path I'm, I'm willing to go down because I don't see a lot of other people doing it, but I think we should be, um, should, I said the bad word, you can't, uh, can't see should. back here. Should is should. crossed out on my board. Should goes yeah. away. Um, you know, Must. Must. yeah, it's, it's something we, we actually must do as a service to other people. I love that mug, by the way. <laughs> awesome <laughs> i just watched the movie the other day um though if you can't see it's uh <laughs> never mind um you know james bond mug uh yeah anyway so you know it's something that we must do and what, what my question is is how do we really get the engagement to those people who are without them because we're not always going to recognize the signs, but how do we get the engagement to them to say, Hey, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to open up about it. And here's some resources. How do you, you perceive that we would go about that and we go about that in society today? Well, I think that's interesting because there's a, there's a number of groups on Facebook mm -hmm. that, that I'm connected with uh, from, from my previous service. And a lot of discussion takes place on there. It, it's what I call superficial commentary yeah and people refer to things and they you know, have a jibe at one another you know the military humor and all this sort of thing <laughs> so you know, nobody else gets <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it it crops up once in a while but not very often and then you you occasionally you'll hear a story where somebody's you know really been struck struck down by you know ptsd or you know mm -hmm. something that's really affected them and Everybody sort of in our in our groups, for example, they say, right, okay, there's a guy here. He's having a really bad time. He's in in this area, in this county. Is anybody nearby that can support him? And generally, within 24 hours, somebody's there supporting. 
Yeah, that's uh, amazing. But, and that's only because uh, that person's had a problem mm -hmm. and nobody else seems to be able to help. Hmm. And then ex-military jump in and they try and help if they can or point them in yeah. the right direction or signpost them. Yeah. But I think I'm all leaning towards, I mean, there's a, there's a, I met a guy a couple of weeks ago in London. He, he runs men's groups. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying women don't need groups as well because they, they do, but they keep it gender specific because for, for certain reasons. Now I don't think there's any problem in having like a, a group for veterans and then there, there are obviously groups around, yeah. but I think there should be, more there that gives them a safe environment to speak out mm -hmm. and to think well actually you know sitting in the restaurant you know monitoring the doorways yeah is uh i'm not the only one who's doing it and actual fact these guys who've been do talking longer than we have actually pointing out that it's not the right thing to do anymore mm. because i think you need a real balance in there you need freshmen in there in the groups but you need more experienced people yeah who've who've been through that and come out the other end to to be the guy the like the elders or the guides within within the groups yeah where the others can look up to and i think that's just one of the ways that you can help achieve this and help people settle down in that transition mm. and i think it needs to be done much early on yeah don't wait for those couple of years which i mean in my experience some people experience things two three years later but some is straight away as soon as they come out yeah and they hit civilian life and they're like not prepared and they're there and it's like everything's at them what i've found in in comparing and contrasting the the two the first responders and the veteran side you know and um i'm so fortunate at this conversation especially as kind of the direction we're moving so it's this is a lot of fun we get to explore some new territory is that um first responders go back into it right Yep. They have to. They're going to go back into it. We're military veterans, especially now that combat operations have kind of slowed down a lot. Um, they're seeing things pop up later on. But when you talk about that freshman and like elder approach, I almost see it as a as a perspective where we could use those, you know, um, combat veterans to come in and, you know, maybe talk with those first responders as from the elder approach saying, hey, look, you know, let's let's get rid of these lines that of the job that we did. And let's let's see how it's affecting us now. And I think with first responders, we can catch it really early on. So it's not just that immediate, you know, um, desk duty, modified duty, desk duty uh, therapy, but we can then start to kind of massage it long-term, right? Yep. Hey, okay, um, you're gonna need a lot of support for the next couple of years and that's okay. You can still do your job. And, oh man, you can do it so well, right? But we're gonna be here to support you along the way. And look what we have over here. We have some guys that have been through some serious stuff that are willing to support you in that. And they're growing too. So it's not just the fact that we're using them to mentor, we're using them to grow themselves because as we know, I think we grow when we help grow others. It's kind of this, like this, uh, I, I don't, I don't know the best way to put it. You know, it's this whole self-fulfilling prophecy kind of deal, right? It's kind of, everything just kind of comes true at once. And I found that I grow so much when I help other people. Um, yep, absolutely. And so we can mingle those communities together because ultimately, well, well, go ahead. I would say one of the things I was going to mention about that, if you had groups like that in the military, they have human, humanitarian duties. Yeah. Not just combat all the time. It's, there's yeah. a lot of humanitarian duties. Yep. And with the police, it's the same there, humanitarian duties. So mm -hmm. they're policing, they're, okay, they're responding to crimes, but also the next, next time they might yeah. be policing, lining the streets when there's a marathon in the city or whatever. Yeah. You know, so they have 
that commonality too mm. and what they could do as a group with the, the freshmen of the elders if we want to call it that way they could unite with some kind of humanitarian purpose there is a group that existed does that you know that no, I didn't go. go uh, it's an it. organization called Team Rubicon. So on the external, uh, I actually belong to the work. I volunteer with them. Yeah. And um, I'll explain it. Why not? I'll shameless plug yeah, on my it. podcast. And so basically it unites the, the service. There's one in the UK. There's one in Australia that started in the US. There's one in Norway. And I think Canada. Yes, Canada. Sorry. I had to think about that for a minute. Um, usually plugging in the US and they actually do that for humanitarian disaster response and it's so funny yep. you bring that up because not a lot of people know about it. it's a big organization but people still don't really know about that and it actually unites them on the external the service factor and then when I looked but when I looked at that on the internal factor like what's uniting there so there's the service and then there's the serving self right and how, yep. how do we transition from one to the other and I've seen the gap between that and the gap is is like oh some some people really aren't ready to serve outwardly and unite they need to go yep. internal so how do we bridge that gap so with TR or team Rubicon excuse me TR is like the what we the that acronym we go to is uh, what they do is they, they take that they unite veterans and first responders to go out into the world and do that and I think you actually you you would dig it it's a great thing I love the organization I actually just applied to their fellowship um, and I just had my interview with them for that so that's pretty cool um, so I love that organization and I looked at what they were doing externally in the world and I was yep. like how internally can we do that to the guys who are still suffering who aren't ready to go back out and unite humanitarianism humanitarianism but how can they come back, repair their soul, repair themselves in the company of all these same people? We're doing it externally really well. Um, and I believe there should be more organizations that do that. Because, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm going to plug the one that I volunteer for. But there's, if you believe that we're not doing enough, you truly believe that there's not enough organizations to make these repairs. Um, so that one does exist. And I'm so glad you brought that up because it gives me an opportunity. I'm like really happy right now. <laughs> like, um, well, I'm happy you mentioned it because yeah. I've never heard of it. Oh man. Yeah. Well, when we get offline, I'll, I'll, uh, we'll talk for a minute, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely absolutely. think it's because, something Go ahead. Because I, I think one of the biggest, the biggest areas where you can achieve repair, if we want to call it repair mm -hmm. or return to function or whatever you want to call it is to serve. Yeah. Now I, I found teaching. You know, I, I left the service and went into teaching physical education. Yeah. Had a back injury, had to re-educate. And then because I've been medically retired and had a, from being a physical education instructor. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew I couldn't carry on with the same job. I, I knew I just couldn't stand still. I remember the disability employment advisor saying, yeah, no. Nah, Put your feet up for a couple of years, get used to your circumstances. I said, Well, I'm afraid that's been late for that. I said, I've I've enrolled, I start on Monday, you know. And I did my high national diploma and I did my business management degree. But then it was like, what do I do now? Yeah. That was me. I was a little bit of a loss then. Yeah. So uh that's when I went to like to Spain to do a master's degree. And nice. That was okay, but then what do I do with all this? Mm. You know, because I come into higher education later on because I've done all my military service first. Yeah. So it was like, well, what do you do with this? So I had to find my feet a little bit and I did some security consulting. Okay. And uh, that worked for a while, but it was like living out of a suitcase. Yeah. And it was kind of like being really back in the service again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, living out of a suitcase. And then somebody asked me, said, look, you know, a uh, friend of mine said, look, I've got this lecturer who's off sick and uh, you've got a business degree. So could you 
teach some business to some of these youngsters, you know, in the college. I said, uh, I've never, never taught in the college. Like, he knew I taught before, but not, yeah. not, not, not business. He said, I'll just try it. He said, just a few hours a week, just for the next few weeks until the guy comes back. I said, and I was in between contracts. I thought, okay, why not? So I gave it a go. And mm -hmm. I thought, I, I, I'm like this. Yeah. This is really good. I'm really having a, a good effect with these kids and it's working, you know. So I got, I got some more hours from, from, from Eddie. And, uh, and from then, we moved house and I approached the local college. I said, look, you know, I'm after a few hours a week, um, some teaching, what have you got? And it went from 10 hours to full time within a space of about three months. Nice. And then I just carried on teaching. Yeah. But all the time during that teaching, I was applying my coaching skills from my sports education, physical oh, education. Yeah. Yeah. But I was coaching the kids rather than teaching them because it's a different, different concept. Oh, yeah, certainly. Uh, and also some of the staff that were uh, my, my staff that I was working with mm -hmm. and that carried on, but that was all in service of others to help them improve yeah. in their lives. I love that. And, and that's what helped me. Yeah. Now, I was still in contact with a lot of those kids even today. Oh, nice. Which is really, it's really, it's, well, it's shocking really because <laughs> one of them hit 30, 31 the other day. And I was like, yeah. really? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that time does fly. Well, I really love what you said, though, you know, returning to service. And so that's one thing that um, that organization has really, really drawn upon. But what, what I find lacking for people who've gone through kind of those traumatic experiences or the transitions is like reconnecting themselves to that. So again, like, one processing through the the events and everything else can reconnecting the dots to everything like what am I good at? What am I you know, and it's not necessarily even you know, finding your purpose. I think most of these people who have gone into this service oriented um, kind of jobs, military uh, or first responders, is they are, their purpose is to serve, right? Yep. The, the big deal is how do we reconnect all the dots? How do we process through everything that's happened, right? How do we make meaning of it? How do we connect back into our, um, how do we connect back into ourselves kind of I wouldn't even say repair because that, that implies somebody's broken, but for the lack yeah. of a better word, we'll use repair and say, okay, now what can we do with this? And, for, and I think you're a shining example of that. I just imagine if there was something along the way that it could have sped that up a little bit, right? Could have like, without you having to process through all these things, because it's a lonely journey when you do it by yourself. I mean, when you do it by yourself, it is truly, mm, I think it's so difficult. It, uh, and and yeah, we're in kind of the mode of like having self-gratification where things shouldn't take so long. But I do truly believe with a little bit of help, we can speed up the process a little bit and return people back to that normal. Um, and then they can turn back outwardly and serve again. Uh, either that's them enjoying their policing work again, you know, enjoying the fire services again, right? Because some of those people definitely, they don't enjoy it anymore because of the thing, but they go out and do it. And then we see what happens. There's all, a lot of things that happen or going back out and doing that humanitarian service, going to teach. I mean, there's so many different ways you can serve. It's just kind of plugging them in and their strengths and making meaning of everything and just kind of bringing it all together and then th thrusting them back out into the world. And it seems like you, you did that on a fairly great scale. I mean, teaching is a very noble profession. You know, sometimes it's taught down upon because they don't make a lot of money. And I'm like, it's, it's educating today's youth of the things that are, you know, really going to help them out and taking the coaching approach, I think is amazing because you can, you're not just, implying things you're saying what is it you want to do you know there's so many different um aspects to that so i really like how you did that and you 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 kind of repaired everything repaired we'll do the air quotes <laughs> and went back out and served man i think that's amazing i think one of the things i think 
can be missed here and it's, it's easy to miss is that that person who is, is effective because of prior service through, through whatever reason mm -hmm. needs to make the conscious decision that they want to change or yeah. they want their help to change. Yep. And until they arrive at that decision, you can give them as many leaflets or send them as many emails as mm -hmm. you like. It's not going to touch them until they make that decision. So true. Absolutely. And that's where the, I think the time lag comes in sometimes because some people are more ready and accepting than others. Oh, yeah. And very often the ones who really need it are the ones who are not making the decision early enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think somebody somewhere needs to think of a way of actually accessing this and accessing these people and helping them with, with the, their decision making. Yeah. I definitely, I, I think that's certainly a, a, a need is to um, say, you know, possibly here with it, this is where you're likely going to end up. Um, but without it, this is where you're likely going to end up. And just showing the the two, what likely happens when you do make the conscious decision of saying something's off. And the, the, the problem is, I think a lot of people trivialize, right, their experiences based off of, um, based off of somebody else's experience. And for me, that's a tough thing to do because I have guys that were, you know, heavy into combat and they'll say, well, you know, this guy didn't do a lot over here. You know, maybe he, he did X, Y, and Z. I'm like, but you, there's no determining factor in how it affected a person. And so I, I, for me, I love to just say, look, you can't determine how somebody, you know, you're not doing a good service calling them weak because of one thing that affected them. And maybe you're more resilient on that aspect. However, you know, we need to maybe have a little bit more compassion and say, look, I know you've been through something and it whether or not you feel it's serious or not, why don't we investigate, right? Um, because certainly you, again, it's, it's just not up to us to determine how severe something really is to somebody else. And I think as personally, as I have grown and I've seen other people do the same thing, all of a sudden you become just a little bit more aware and compassionate about, okay, maybe to them, this was a big deal, right? <laughs> like I imagine what, you know, my son's spilling milk on himself this morning and he's just bawling his eye. Oh my God. I'm like, this isn't the worst thing in the world. I said, like, you know what? Right now it probably is to him. It I'm not trying to, to, yeah, I'm not trying to yeah. teach him that that is something to cry about, but Hey, let's process it really quick and then determine, Oh, this isn't so bad. Um, yeah. and I can carry on, but yeah, yeah that's what I think needs. Yeah, you're right. There is definitely, yeah. we need to start defining saying there's no scale on trauma. It's just how we move forward. Yeah, and everybody's different. Mm -hmm. Everybody's oh, so different on that. And the interest, I, I, I'm studying optimism at the moment. Oh yeah. One of the one of the things I'm doing is studying optimism because there's lots of uh, there's lots of studies about the effects of optimism. Yeah. I mean, one one came out last August, based in the US. Actually, it was a really interesting study where I think there's nearly seventy thousand women and fifteen hundred veterans were studied for over a very long period of time, from like 30, 40 years. Yeah. And they looked at the effects of people who are highly optimistic. Hmm. And the study found, and it supported a previous study that was done in the, in the Netherlands, that highly optimistic people live longer. Wow. Now, if that isn't an, an incentive to snap out of something right. and become highly optimistic, I don't know what is. Yeah. I mean, they, they looked at every aspect of it. They looked at all the demographics. They looked at illnesses. Uh, for ladies, for example, uh, if you had exposure to type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. it was like you could live 14% longer. Yeah. If you had a uh, heart condition, 
it may be 15% longer. Yeah. If you didn't have exposure to either of those and you were highly optimistic, you could live 18% longer. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately for us guys, it's a little bit lower. That's <laughs> it always seems to be the case. I have no idea why. And uh, under, under the same circumstances, the, it could be 15, 16% longer your life if you're highly optimistic. Yeah. Now, do you think people who are suffering and have trauma is still in their minds and are relive these things do you think they're, they're optimistic people mm -hmm. highly optimistic people what's the likelihood yeah. of that oh yeah it's it's low right because there's it becomes into the point of it becomes your everyday so what is there to be optimistic about because you're still processing this or reliving or thinking about this certain event right yeah. or events yeah Absolutely. so their their optimism is is fairly low right if Whereas, not even yeah. existent yeah so where, whereas what i'm studying at the moment is the what causes optimism and if we mm. can find a recipe for the cause of optimism wouldn't it be wonderful if we could replicate it and teach people how to be optimistic oh yeah yeah i think i think it would be i think it would be worth the i think it would be worth it just to hey how can we how can we just turn it into, into something, you know, it, it's, it's almost like, again, like rewriting the story, like let's turn something that was negative. Let's turn that into something that's meaningful. And now we can turn it out. You know, there's so many ways to turn stories on their sides, right. Is, but so many people want the negative, like they want the, um, the effect, right. Well, this affected me. The, the victim mentality is what a lot of people will call it. They become yep. a victim to the story. And so, um, but the hero's journey is almost like optimism, right? I mean, think about it. You know, it's the hero's journey. I've done all this, but I came out clean on the other side, right? I mean, there's but somebody. Some, go ahead. Sometimes, if you get somebody who was not very optimistic and they become optimistic, yeah, they get a bit of imposter syndrome. Mm, yeah. They go like, "Well, yeah, but you're optimistic." Like, well, Ob <laughs> should I be? Uh, am I? Am I really? Yeah, and they question themselves. I love it. Yeah. Now, so, in it's a really when I've been talking to people because what I do is a. 10, 15 minute telephone call with people and mm -hmm. we talk about their level of optimism. I only talk with highly optimistic people because yeah. I want to learn if there's a pattern yeah. so we can replicate it. Yeah. And even though some of those people are, uh, they have this like feeling of being an imposter mm -hmm. because they're so, they're so optimistic about life. You know, nothing really yeah. touches them or, you know, they can reframe things as, as what you mentioned earlier on. Yeah. And I think if we can help people who, be them first responders or military and they've come out and they have this effect if we can help them be more optimistic about life mm. or learn to be optimistic in some way shape or form that can gradually help them move into the a, a really positive direction yeah and other things can drop by the wayside that's not to say that they might not need support from professionals because they may do i think it's just a it's a greater piece of the puzzle the like uh you know, I was talking to some professionals in counseling the other week and they said, look, this thing is a giant puzzle. There isn't just one solution. You just don't go just talk to a counselor. You just don't do peer support. There are so many uh, pieces to this, to this wellness puzzle that need to be plugged into place. And so many people just go for one solution and then the next and then the next instead of taking this basically holistic kind of approach to it and saying, okay, what can I plug and play in that's going to become the thing that works for me? 
And, um, and again, not everything works for everybody. I think that's the problem is, is, you know, we want this one size fits all solution when we can find these different things that'll work or we can modify one to help serve the needs of somebody else. And, and that's, I mean, that's just like the free market, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's the same thing. It's just doing it in service to others instead of trying to sell a product. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for, for this, you're right. You know, I think, I think when we look at it, we need to look at stuff that's going to be in service to these other people. What, what is going to best serve them so they can go out and surf? Because the thing that I really feel is, is being let down is being able to turn these people back on to something that's meaningful and going out to these organizations. And so let's find the, the things that are going to work and bring it all together and hone it all together. And I think you did a very good job of tying this in. Um, and just ultimately start moving forward, right? Because I think as we've talked, you've been able to do that over a, over a long time. Yeah. However, what you've kind of said is, you know, what you've learned is maybe it could have been done, you know, in a shorter period of time. You know, what if, you know, the time you were laid out, you know, thinking about those things with a, with a back injury, maybe as you're bringing those all on, maybe that we, you didn't need that to have that time. You could have processed it sooner, right? There's so, I mean, there's just so many ways, like you said, catching it early on. Let's try to, let's try to catch it as soon as it happens or, you know, not five, 10, 20 years later and turn it into something that is great. And I really love that that converse, this conversation morphed into that. Um, you know, we kind of, we, we were talking about a few different things before, but this is something I think is really needed and, and having that perspective, you know, of somebody who served on both sides is really valuable. Um, I think the other side as well is when you come out and you transition to civilian life, Yeah. whatever path you choose, whether you choose to be in, you know, in the fire service, the police service, when you want to be an accountant, whatever. Yeah. Life gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine you've left, you've transitioned, you go into your new employment, whatever you choose to do in civilian life. And if you've got a family to support and a family to feed, keep a roof over their head, pay the mortgage, be part of that family, and you're working full time, Where's the time to address any difficulties? Yeah. You know, they're, they're real barriers, aren't they, for people? And they just go, I'll, I'll deal with it tomorrow. But tomorrow never comes. Yeah. Yep. And that, I think they need to be allowed time mm. to do these things as well. And they need to build time into their, their transition. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's a real barrier. It is, you know, um, I've come up against that and I've seen other guys come up against it. It's like, okay, well, I've got to, especially the very service oriented people, there's so much trying to take care of everything else. They don't take time to themselves or trying to figure out the solution. They'll sit for years on it in suffering, um, trying to figure a way out instead of turning back in inwards, um, and building that time for themselves, man, I've, I've, I know I've been guilty of it and it's, that's okay. The, the, the realization is what, what helps. And that's the point. A lot of guys don't even come to either. And gals, you know, a lot of people in, in that, um, that sit in that, that area, they just don't come to the, even the realization that they've, they've turned all the attention somewhere else and they haven't turned it back inwards, given themselves like the permission to say, okay, Hey, I need to, I need to fix me because you know, if this vessel, if you know, if the, if the boat has a hole in it and I'm fixing all the other boats with holes in it, we're still dragging a boat that's going to take on water. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I think you're spot on there. You, you need to give yourself permission. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Hey, it's okay to, it's okay to feel not so good. It's okay to take time to meditate or read or watch a video on 
helping yourself or maybe finding a program that'll help you out in the long run. Yeah, you're right. That's it's a hard thing to do because you're so used to, to giving it to everybody else. You know, and not only that, you're, you're, you're so used to, if you come from the military, everybody giving you permission to do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So to give yourself permission is like quite an alien concept. It is. It is. <coughs> it, it, it's funny because we look in, so there's such a, a thing on the veteran population of, of um, you know, oh, they're great workers and they're great, you know, people for entrepreneurship and all this. And so you're absolutely right. Um, they are because they'll, they'll go, at it a hundred percent, but there still is that little bit of direction that exists, right? That, that just, okay, point me to the next objective, point me to, and then I'll crush through it. And so sometimes I think we need to start, and even in the other services, I think that's a sim very similar, um, a very similar avenue. It was like, okay, let's, how can we kind of point you in the right direction, but let you kind of go at it on your own of what we know you're good at, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that also would help in the recovery aspect as well let's, you know, let's, we're going to go this direction and you're going to figure it all out. Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do next because that's too much. Um, because believe that's it or not, <clears throat> go on. I said, believe it or not, you know, um, there is a whole lot of autonomy that exists in the services, right. On both sides. There is. It's just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, <clears throat> it's quite interesting because I remember, uh, a particular client who was, was ex-military and, and on, now an entrepreneur. And, had all these weird and wonderful ideas that he wanted to do and these objectives he wanted to achieve but what he needed was accountability mm. he needed to be accountable to somebody external in order for him to achieve yeah and that's the only reason he needed a coach hmm. really to be accountable to so when we set tasks uh week one he says right okay the tasks we set out, you know, this, 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 and this. He said, yeah, okay, so by, by the time we meet in two, two, week two, I'll have achieved these, these, and these, and I'll be halfway through these, and I'll need support for these. And we'd look at all aspects of, you know, where yeah. we need external actors. And then two weeks later, we meet and said, right, I've done this, this, and this. We've hit, I've hit a wall on this, and he could do and totally restructure it. Yeah. And his whole program was built that way because that's the way he wanted it. Hmm. He just needed somebody external to be accountable to because being – an independent entrepreneur yeah his wife wasn't interested in his business <laughs> yeah you know she was it was not her bag really yeah so and he didn't want to let other people know in the business circles what he was doing because he wanted to get the competitive edge mm. so he needed somebody independent to be yeah. accountable to yeah and and that worked for him I definitely think that is something that that a lot of people on that service side could use, whether you know um, through you know independent or even through a greater program as they're starting starting to try to move forward. You know, something that's even offered to them, like, hey, this is something that we give because we know you're in the process of of moving forward. So let's try to build that in and get that little bit of structure structure back. Man, it's so interesting to think about all the different the aspects. You know, that that we could we could serve, especially I think as a responsibility to the people who who've given up so much you know, um, <clears throat> in service of the greater good of what we could do to really help them kind of move forward. And this conversation's really been, um, it's just enlightening. I love it. Like the perspective has been great. Um, you know, getting a lot in your background has been, um, I think we went down an avenue we didn't expect to go down, but I think, we did. I think, but we I did. think knowing yeah. the audience we serve, yeah, it's, yeah. it's going to be so powerful. But I do think that as well that 
the service has set you up to being resilient in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I had a back injury and was medically retired. Yeah. And I took a redirection. Now, mm-hmm. I took a redirection because that's me. I, I, did, I couldn't stand still. Yeah. I couldn't not do anything. Uh, I needed purpose. I needed to be engaged. I needed to move forward, as we've been talking about now. Yeah. And then exactly the same one there. My sight started to deteriorate with the with the eye disease. It's like, okay, we have no time scales, but we're told it's gonna happen. What shall I do for work when that happens? Yeah. And it wasn't a case of, okay, it's gonna happen and that's it, leave everything. It's what do I do for work? How do I occupy my days? Mm. You know, what, what, where's my purpose in life gonna be then? Mm-hmm. And I think the services set you up for that. Yeah. And yeah. uh, I've been interviewed a few times and very often one of the questions is, do you think your military service has helped you get to where you are now? So, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but not just, you know, the, the learning and the combat and all the different aspects of it, but the, the camaraderie, mm-hmm. the ethos, yeah. the motto. I mean, the Royal Military Police is exemplo duthimos, by example, we shall lead. Mm-hmm. And I've remembered that all the way through. Oh. And I think having that behind you is a massive support. And I think we need to be able to tap into that support and then use it for the good. I really, you answered the question. I was just going to ask you to lead out. And so I asked, you know, what would you tell to somebody else? You know, the, the, the whole label of the show is to, to stay in a fight, you know, yeah. for, for anybody in the services who's really struggling and looking for a way forward. But you really... <laughs> I love how it just happened organically, you know, I mean, really you can tap back into all those things that you've learned through the, through that, um, through the, you know, the, the ethos or the, you know, the mottos and the sayings and everything you've learned through your service, whether it be in, in law enforcement, fire or, or in the military, yeah, whatever. there's so yeah. much you can lean on that. Even, even if you did two or three years, right. There's just that, 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 that structure that exists that you can just kind of tap into. And it's there. Yeah. And, and just, start, start to move the needle a little bit, you know, yeah. and know that And the big thing you said is the camaraderie that there's a greater good out there that exists to help you move forward. Um, and they're always going to be there. That's, I think that's the underlying thing that people don't look at the service oriented people, you know, be it fire, EMS, police or, or military is that they are, it's a, it's a, it's a brotherhood for the lack of a, you know, uh, uh, I don't say peoplehood. It's just the term we use, right? It's brotherhood. Try to be PC, but however, that exists and if you're falling people are going to be there to help it's i tell you something happen. funny i tell you something funny now it, it is a brotherhood it is that camaraderie but not always mm. because very sometimes this is quite quite amusing because if i'm in the back of the taxi with my wife for example in london and uh, we, t- we get talking to the taxi driver and they say oh, about you end up talking about the military maybe and or something's happened and you're going past you know the horse guards parade or something and they talk about the military and oh did you serve yes yeah, so, Oh, what were you? I said, the military police. <laughs> yeah. Deadly silence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, up teen times. And, and my wife was, was not with me when I was in the military. So she, she finds it quite humorous that yeah. as soon as you mentioned that, uh, the conversation's cut. 
with, with not everybody, but you know, with a few. Yeah. <laughs> and you oh, know which side of the fence they were on. Yeah, it's 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 funny when you have those conversations with other people who've served, you know. Um, but I think in the greater good, when we look at it, you know, when I talk to other people who are in other services, right, and the first responder yeah. side, like we all just kind of can get along really well because I, you know, if if we really look at the root of it, which is the service and the things that they they go through, and not necessarily how you know how it went through. And how it's really affecting them now. I think that there's such this greater bond that exists that just needs to be uncovered. And I really like I enjoyed this conversation so much. Me too. Me too. Because because it's something that 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 needed to be said, and um, it really came out in a way that I think is going to be super helpful to 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 a lot of people, and and maybe people will learn a little bit about you that they didn't know, right? I hope so, so yeah, that's why not? What we aim for, right? Um, I think those backgrounds are very important. But I'll give you a minute um, to explain. You know, if anybody wants to reach out to you like where they can get a hold of you where they can find you okay uh well the main area to get in touch with me is my website which is www.coachpaul.expert that's coachpaul.expert okay and uh, they can get me there um i'm on twitter i'm on facebook too uh but uh, the website is the is the main the main port of call okay what I am looking for, as I mentioned about the Optilosophy project I'm involved in, if anybody is highly optimistic and they want to be involved in the project, uh, it's just li literally a 10, 15 minute call with uh, some questions about your, your level, level of optimism and where it came from. Um, you can contact me through the website. That's, uh, and I'll be quite happy to, to give you a call and we can, we can have a chat. Amazing. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I the other it. thing I'm doing at the moment is writing a book on, on values. So anybody's got any input or any anecdotes or stories that they want to impart about the val their values and what's important to them then you know contact me let me well, know i love it like i said you know we try to open up everybody you know if if your story um something about that resonates with where you're sitting at we want to make a resource available to anybody just even have that conversation because it's all in service to other people and that's all we're looking to do is to really tell the stories of people like yourself and then really open those avenues up to everybody else but i really appreciate the conversation the vulnerability and being able to open up on the show because it's how difficult for a lot of people to do so i want to thank you so much for being able to do that Paul. you're welcome i hope that helps a few people sharing uh, the story yeah. You, know, you never know I, where it's going to go. I think it will. I think, I think it'll have a tremendous impact, my friend. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. We look forward to bringing you new content each and every week through our boots on the ground approach of real and relatable guests. But I'll tell you what, this show cannot carry on without your support. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Thanks everyone for listening. I want to remind you to stay in the fight.